This morning, we are back in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about the submission of suffering servants. The submission of suffering servants. And so I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter 2, and I'll begin by reading our passage for us, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18. And I'll read through verse 21. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 21. The word of the Lord says this, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If, for the sake of conscience toward God... A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. When you and I are wronged, there is something inside of us that wants to rise up and make things right. We want to do that. It's in the flesh. It's there. In fact, Warren Wearsby says, quote, the human tendency is to fight back and to demand our rights. But that is the natural response of the unsaved person. And we must do much more than they do. Anybody can fight back. It takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit and let God fight his battles. End quote. That's what Peter is addressing here in our passage before us this morning. See, when you and I are wronged, especially by those who are in authority over us, there is something within us, inside of us, that wants to fight back. We want to fight them. But we must not allow the flesh to lead us down that path, but to walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit so that we don't go down that road. Now, just to to set the context for us here in 1 Peter 2, for three weeks we have looked at the, the duty to the government and how you and I are commanded to willingly submit to the government, to the governing authorities over us. This is what our God commands us to do as His children. They have been placed over us by God, and we understand that it is God who establishes kings and removes kings. We read this in Daniel 2.21. God is the one who does it. God establishes kings and God removes kings. What is our duty then? Our duty is to submit to those who are in authority over us. And that's been the theme running through verses 
13 through 17, Peter has been telling us about submission. We are to live lives of submission. And now here in verses 18 through 20, we see the same theme. But now Peter's not focused on the government, but on the household order or household codes. In this passage, he's going to focus on on the master-slave relationship. And then as we work our way, continue to work our way into chapter 3, we're going to see where Peter focuses there on the husband-wife relationship. He's talking about household order, household code here. He's focusing in on the household unit as we see here in the word that Peter uses in verse 18. Notice at the beginning of verse 18, Peter says, servants, servants. Now we saw back up at the end of verse 16 where Peter says that you and I are bond slaves of God. Notice back up in verse 16, he says there, act as free men, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. That's what he calls us. He says, you and I are bond slaves of God. As believers, we are slaves. The word that Peter uses there is the Greek word doulos. Doulos, meaning slave. And we talked a little bit about that word doulos when we studied verse 16. But a doulos was a slave who is solely committed to another person. This is a person who is completely swallowed up in the will of his master because he belongs to his master. Being a slave meant that you not only belonged to another person, but it also meant that you were always ready to obey that person in every way. Ready and willing to obey. In fact, a slave's duty was to carry out the wishes of his master and to do it without hesitation or complaining. William Barclay said, Slaves know no law but their master's word. They have no rights of their own. They are absolute possessions of their master and they are bound to give their master unquestioning obedience. Unquestioning obedience. And Peter tells us there that we are slaves of God. That is our relationship with God. We are to give him unquestioning obedience. We don't hesitate when God says, do this. We don't complain when God says, do this. We're his slaves. And he's our master. And this word doulos is is talking about those slaves. In fact, even in Peter's day, there, there were slaves. William Barclay goes on and tells us about the nature of slavery in the early church in the Roman Empire. And he tells us that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million. In fact, in Rome and in the larger cities of the empire, you had a third, some estimate up to more than half of the total population were slaves. They were slaves, which means that it is probably the majority of those whom Peter is writing to who are slaves, as he's writing to these believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, the majority of those in whom he's writing to 
They are slaves. They're owned by a master. And there were, there were many ways that one became a slave. Some were conquered in war. They were conquered in war and made slaves. Some were sold as a payment for a debt. Some were even born into slavery. If your parents were slaves and you were born into it, you were a slave. Which, if you were a slave and, and, and you had children, then your children belonged to your master. That's how it was. Some people even sold themselves into slavery in order to avoid poverty. They willingly sold themselves into slavery. And in Asia Minor, where Peter's readers were, slaves were predominantly used within the household to perform domestic duties. That is what most slaves were. They were those who served within the house. They had domestic duties. And that's who Peter is referring to here in verse 18. But here in verse 18, Peter doesn't use the Greek word doulos. In fact, he uses a different word. He uses the word oiketes. But many commentators believe that these two words are closely associated and that oiketes is used as an equivalent of doulos. But what, what Peter is referring to here when he uses this word oiketes is he's, he's referring to a household slave. That's the root meaning of oiketes. It means house. So this is a household slave who lived in the same house as their master. And they were a domestic servant. Now, although these people were slaves, many of these servants, they were well-educated. Many of these slaves were well-educated. And in fact, they held responsible positions in the households. You had slave that, slaves that served as farmers, some as, as doctors, even teachers and musicians. That's what they were hired to do. They were slaves. And although masters had absolute rights over their slaves, they generally showed their slaves respect and loved them and treated them like family. Why would they do that? Because they wanted the most fruit out of the labor of their slaves. So they treated them well. They wanted them to be fruitful. So they loved them. They, they treated them as family. But not all masters did that. Not all masters treated their slaves well. In fact, some slaves were treated poorly and were even beaten as they were considered property of their owners. But most, by, by this time in the Roman world, they were treated with dignity and respect. In fact, slaves could marry during this time. During this time in the Roman Empire, slaves could marry. They could run a business, they could accumulate wealth, and they could even purchase their own freedom. And so those are, the, those are the circumstances that many of Peter's readers would have been living in. 
As we understand slavery back then, most of those in whom Peter is writing to, most of them were most likely slaves. They were owned by a master. In fact, John MacArthur says it is safe to say that as the gospel spread throughout the Greco-Roman world, most of the converts were slaves. You think about that. You read the book of Acts and and the gospel goes out to the world. The majority of those in whom were converts, who were saved, were actually slaves. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 20, where he says, Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, if you were saved while you were a slave, remember that now you are free in Christ. You're now free in Christ. But don't think that you aren't physically still a slave. You still are a slave. Just because you're free in Christ doesn't mean that in your social position, your social status, you get to run. You get to flee that. No, you're still a slave. Remain a slave physically, but remember that spiritually you're free in Christ. But if you're able to be free physically, it says do that as well. Be free. If you can buy your freedom, buy your freedom. Go and be free. That's fine. And then he says, if you were saved as a free person physically, remember that you're a slave of Christ. Essentially, don't think that you can boast and think that you're better than a slave if you're a free Christian. Remember, you're a slave of Christ. You don't get to live your life however you want to live your life. As a believer now, you are under authority. You belong to Christ. You're a slave of him. But Paul and and Peter have to address this issue because they know that many Christians in those days are physically slaves of masters. That is their social status. That's what they were living in. And listen, neither Peter nor Paul ever told slaves to revolt or to riot or to protest or to do anything that would include them standing up and demanding their rights. Never. Not once do they do that. They aren't to start a revolt now that they're spiritually free in Christ. No, there's a specific way in which they are to live as believers who are still slaves. And that's what Peter addresses for us here in our passage. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see two main points here. We're going to see, first of all, the requirement for a suffering servant, and then we'll see the reward for a suffering servant. The requirement and the reward. Now, as I said, not all slaves were suffering. Not all of them suffered in their slavery. But there were slaves who did suffer 
And it would have been those slaves who would have found it hardest to submit. And so, Peter aims at them here in this passage. That's who he's aiming at. Those who are suffering as slaves. So let's look at this passage. Let's look at our first point here. The requirement for a suffering servant. Look at verse 18 again. Notice what Peter says there. He says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. What is the duty of this household slave? Peter gives the command here. Be submissive. You must be submissive. Again, this is exactly what Peter commanded back up in verse 13 in relation to the government. Be submissive. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And again, we talked about it back up in verse 13 that that submit there is a, a willing, voluntary action. That we are willing and ready to submit to those who are over us. And it's the same thing here in verse 18. He's telling these slaves, these servants, be submissive to your masters. Willingly do that. Voluntarily submit to them. In fact, this word that's used here is a, it's a present passive participle in the Greek And it has the sense of a present imperative, meaning it's a command, an imperative. But as a a present there, present participle, it means that these slaves were to be continually submissive to their masters. This is something that is to be ongoing in their lives as slaves of a master. You continue to submit to them. Day after day after day, your duty, your responsibility is to submit. They weren't to revolt. They weren't to tell their master that they're tired of submitting to their authority. No, this is something that they were to always be continually doing. Now, that word master there is the word despotes, and and it means one who has legal control and authority over persons, such as subjects or slaves. One who has legal control and authority over persons. It's It's a strong word that is used here. A strong word that entails absolute power and control. The master has absolute power and control. And Peter commands these servants to submit to their masters, to submit to them, not to fight for their rights or to ditch out on their master and skip town. No, they were called to submit. You see, Peter and Paul understood that there was a social order. There was order in society. That there were those who were leaders and there are those who are followers. You have leaders and you have followers in society. That's how society works. With government, he's already told them, they are the leaders. The government, they're the leaders, so you submit to them. That's our duty. That's our responsibility as Christians. We submit to them. And then he says here with masters, they are the leaders 
So you servants, you're called to submit. That's your duty. That's how a society is to function. There are leaders and there are those who are followers. Otherwise, you have chaos as everyone's trying to reach the top and lead. And when everyone's leading, no one's leading, right? So in a society, in order for a society to function, you have leaders and you have followers. He says, if you're a follower, submit to your leader. That's what you're commanded to do. And so you have here masters and servants, masters and slaves. Now, some might ask, why didn't Peter and Paul criticize this institution of slavery or advocate for Christians to overthrow it? Why didn't they do that? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, they would have been fighting a losing battle. They would have been fighting a losing battle. These young churches couldn't stand up to the Greco-Roman world and take it down. That wasn't going to happen. Second, if they tried to start a revolt and overturn the social structures, they would have just brought greater persecution upon themselves. They were already under persecution. But if they go in and try and disrupt the social order and what's going on there, they would have brought greater persecution upon themselves. So Peter and Paul say, here's what you're commanded to do. Submit. But most importantly, revolt, rioting, going after the social Order and structure is not how social change takes place. It takes place where? In the heart. It takes place in the heart. Peter and Paul weren't aimed at the social structures. They were aimed at the hearts of the people. Which means we're to go out and preach the gospel and live the gospel. That's what Peter is saying here. What we've been studying is we've been looking at even submitting to the government. Do good deeds. Live for Christ. That's how you'll silence them. And in fact, even back up in verse 12, he says, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Unbelievers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's he saying there? They get what? Saved. That's what he's talking about. You go and live for Christ, you preach Christ to them, and what will happen? If it's God's will, they'll get saved. That's what you're to do. That's how you're to live your life. That's even what Peter says there in verse 15. He says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live in obedience to Christ. Don't go after the social structure. Go after the hearts of men. Go preach the gospel and live the gospel in your life. And then watch and see how that transforms people and then begins to change things. You see, Peter is worried about the godly response of God's people in the face of mistreatment. 
not some revolt or protest or strike. And if your master is an ungodly man and is mistreating you, you submit to him and you show him honor and respect and you do your work as unto the Lord. In fact, Paul told slaves the same thing in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Do it for the Lord. Seek to please Him. Seek to honor the Lord. Your revolt is not going to win them to Christ. Your rioting is not going to win them to Christ. Your striking is not going to win them to Christ. But your godly attitude might win them to Christ. And if it's God's will, the one who's mistreating you might see your good works and give glory to God. He might see your good works and go, why? I know the way that I treat you. Why, why, do you, why do you love me so much? Why do you care? Why do you submit to me? I do all of these things to mistreat you and do all of this. Tell me, why do you do that? Huh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> That's our opportunity to share the gospel. Tell them about Christ. You striking against your master won't win him to Christ. In fact, it'll just give him more fuel to attack you. Remember what Paul says in, in Romans 12, 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So far as it depends on you believer now we can take this here what Peter is talking about there in verse 18 with these servants and these masters and we can apply this to the employer employee relationship and we see that we're called to submit to those who are over us to our boss if you have a boss at work called to submit to your boss and notice what peter says there in verse 18 he says with all respect with all respect that word for respect there in the greek is the word uh, phobos which means fear or reverence fear or reverence and we would ask fear for who is Peter telling us we need to have fear of our boss? Reverence of our boss? Peter's not talking about fear of a boss, fear of a master, but he's talking about fear of who? Fear of God. You do this with all respect. You do this with a heart of fear for God. We're to fear God above all. In fact, isn't that what Peter just said back in verse 17? Look at what he says back in 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear who? God, honor the king. There's only one that you fear. There's only one that you have ultimate reverence for. That's God. 
you fear him above all else. The attitude that we have in submitting to those who are masters or bosses over us is with an attitude of fear toward God. In fact, it's another way of of saying what Peter has already said back in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You do it for the Lord's sake. You do it because you have ultimate fear of God. You do it because you revere Him. And you desire to be obedient to Him. We do it for the Lord's sake, out of fear of God, because He is the one who has established the order of government. Why do we submit to masters then with the fear of God? Because God is the one who has set up the social order, the social structure. God has set it up so that There are those who are bosses and those who are workers. There are those who are employers and those who are employees. That's how it goes. And because we fear Him, we fear God, we submit to His order. This will also come up in chapter 3 in verse 2, speaking of a wife's fear of God as she submits to her husband. Do it out of fear of God because you have reverence for God. And so Peter says here, submit to your master, your boss, your employer with an attitude of fearing God. Now, as I said, many masters treated their slaves with respect and dignity and they treated them like family. But others did not. And Peter knows that. And that's why he says there in the second half of verse 18, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You see, Peter knows that not every master was a believer. Not every master was a believer. And some of them were cruel and would give their slaves harsh treatment. He knew that. Some were good and gentle. And it's easy to submit to a master like that, right? Who's good and gentle. That word gentle there means fair, yielding, kind, courteous, or tolerant. And it speaks of one who is not insisting on every right of the letter of the law or custom. Essentially, you could say this. This is a a gentle, gracious boss. And that's how a boss is to be. If you are a boss... You are to be gentle and kind and gracious toward those who work for you. And we might wish that Peter stopped right there, right? Submit to those who are good and gentle. Okay, Peter, we can do that. But Peter doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. He says but also to those who are unreasonable. See, Peter knew that some bosses were unreasonable. That word unreasonable in the Greek is scolios, from which we get scoliosis, a crooked spine. It means being morally bent or twisted, crooked, dishonest, or even perverted. 
In fact, the, the Net Bible translates it that way. It says, also those who are perverse. And this is not in some sensual way, but it means a morally crooked master. That's what he's talking about there. Those who are morally crooked. They're cruel. They're dishonest. They're harsh masters. They're harsh bosses. They are those who are unreasonable. Peter is saying, even when your boss is this kind of person, you are to submit. You don't get to run away. In fact, in these times, a slave couldn't run away. In our day, yes, you can go get a new job. We get that. But in those days, a slave was owned by his master, so he couldn't just go down the street and get a new job or get a new master. Couldn't do that. He had to submit to his master, no matter what the circumstances were that he was in. In fact, we read earlier in our scripture reading about a slave who ran away from his master. Who was that? Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. He ran away from Philemon. And then he meets Paul. The Apostle Paul. Boy, what a great guy to run into, huh? He runs into the Apostle Paul, and what does Paul do? Preaches the gospel. Because that's what Paul did. He preaches the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus gets saved, and Paul sends Onesimus right back to Philemon. Think about this. Paul didn't say, Onesimus, oh, you're now free in Christ. Go live your life how you want to live your life. What does he do? He sends him back to his master. You're a slave of Philemon. You need to go back. Onesimus didn't get saved and then get to go do whatever he wanted to do. No, Paul knew that a slave was to submit to his master. But the amazing thing in this account then is that both of them were brothers in Christ. They're now spiritually equal as brothers in Christ, and yet they still had duty and responsibility. Even though Onesimus was spiritually equal to Philemon, he still had a duty and responsibility to submit to Philemon because Philemon was his master. They're spiritually equal, but they're socially different. One is a master and the other is a slave, even though they are brothers in Christ. Now listen, this doesn't mean that Philemon was better than Onesimus because he was the master. But that was the order. That was the structure. And Paul knew that. And so he tells Onesimus, go back, and he tells Philemon to receive him back. Why? Because a slave was to submit to his master what he's called to do practically speaking in our day an employee submits to an employer you submit to good bosses and you even submit to bad bosses but as a believer we're commanded to submit and why do we do it because we fear who we fear our God we fear him because ultimately we have honor and respect and reverence for our God. And therefore, 
We even submit to a bad boss, an unreasonable one. And so that's the, the requirement for a, a suffering servant. Be submissive to your master with a fear of God. Let's look at our second point. Point number two, the reward for a suffering servant. The reward for a suffering servant. Look at verse 19. Notice what Peter says there. He says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. This here is the reward, and therefore this is the motivation to obey this command. Peter says there at the beginning of verse 19, for this finds favor. And who does this find favor with? With God. This finds favor with God. How do we know that? Look at the end of verse 20. Peter says there at the end of verse 20, this finds favor with God. Finds favor with God. Now, that word favor there in the Greek is the word charis, which is normally translated grace. Grace. And the principle that's given here in these verses is that God rewards those who suffer unjustly. God gives grace to those who suffer unjustly. He finds favor with them. He pours out his grace upon them. Isn't that what we all want? Do we want the grace of God? Of course we want that. See, you might suffer unjustly in your job, and you may not get a reward here on earth. But the unjust punishment that you were enduring is not missed by God. God sees it all. In fact, Peter's saying here, when you are unjustly treated as a believer and you bear up under sorrow, under that hardship, when you're given this unjust treatment, you continue to, to bear through all of that, that makes God grateful and it pleases Him. Did you know that you can make God grateful and please Him? That's what Peter's saying here. See, there are two ways in which God is pleased. The first way is found in the middle of verse 19. That is, God is pleased when we seek to please him in our conscience. God is pleased when we seek to please him in our conscience. Notice that phrase there in the middle of verse 19. He says, if for the sake of conscience toward God. What does this mean? Peter's saying, if you are suffering and you continue to have God's will and God's presence in your mind as you are suffering, knowing that God sees what you're going through, and you continue to do what God expects you to do, even if it means that you suffer for it, if that is what is happening, then that finds favor with God, and God is pleased. God is pleased. And you see, sometimes because of your relationship with God, you may have to deviate from what your master tells you to do. Right? Because you're a child of God and you belong to him, sometimes you are going to have to tell your boss, you're going to have to tell your master, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. 
A.W. Tozer said, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. (laughs) You may have to tell a boss, I'm sorry, boss. I can't cheat on that. I can't. Well, what are you, one of those goody-two-shoe Christians? Yeah, not a goody-two-shoe, but I am a Christian. I belong to Christ. And if I was to do that, that's sin. Sin against my master. I can't do that. You might have to, have to tell the boss, I'm sorry, boss, I can't tell that customer that because that's a lie. My God tells me I have to speak the truth. So boss, I'm sorry, but I I can't do that. And if your boss then treats you unjustly because of your conscience toward God and your desire to please him, Peter says this, this finds favor with God. Remember that. Remember, it pleases God. And remember what you're called to do as his child. You're called to please him. But God, it's hard. I'm being treated poorly, wrongly. It's unjust. Yeah, God knows. He sees it all. He knows exactly what your boss is doing. But if you do what is right, in your mind, in your conscience, toward God, it finds favor with him. God's pleased with that. One commentator says the conduct of the slave should not be governed by the character of his master. Whether he be kindly or brutal, but by his own inner consciousness of his personal relationship to God your relationship with Christ that ought to drive you and motivate you, encourage you to always do what is right because that's what pleases him. You see, our relationship with God and our obedience to him ought to govern our actions and how we respond to mistreatment. Now, you might say, well, well I don't have a boss, so, so this doesn't apply to me. But notice what Peter says there in verse 19. Notice what he says right in the middle there. He says, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows. A person. What does Peter do here? He broadens it. He goes right from the slave. This is how you are to do it. Now he broadens it to all believers. If you are ever being mistreated in any way, for any reason, he says, when you suffer unjustly, you do what is right because in your mind you're always seeking the will of God and to do what pleases Him. He says, that finds favor with God. 
God will reward you for that. He will reward you. And when we respond in a godly manner, this finds favor with God. Then there's a second way that God is pleased. Second way God is pleased, God is pleased is when we suffer for doing what is right. When we suffer for doing what is right. And Peter gives us two scenarios or illustrations to hammer home this point in verse 20. Notice what he says there in verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What is Peter saying here? He's saying, if you sin against God and are harshly treated and you endure that treatment with patience, well, there's no reward, there's no credit there that you get. That doesn't find favor with God. Why? Because you're, you're getting what you deserve. Because you've sinned against God. You've done what is wrong You sinned and are now being harshly treated. Well, God doesn't reward sin, right? God doesn't reward sin. And the treatment that you're now getting is the just consequence of that sin. If you suffer for wrongdoing, don't go crying to God. Don't go crying to God. That suffering is the result of your sin. And Peter says here, it deserves no credit. But, continuing in verse 20, he says, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. God is pleased when we suffer for doing what is right. And not only is God pleased, but we are rewarded because we get God's grace, God's favor toward us. One commentator says, if one suffers for doing what is right, a reward is fitting. Fitting. When you're obedient to Christ and you have a nasty boss who is unjustly causing suffering and you patiently endure that, remember that God sees all that's going on. God sees it. And he will be pleased with you. And he will reward you. In fact, I I read earlier from Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Paul goes on in verse 24, he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Knowing what's coming, knowing that you will be rewarded. You will be rewarded. God always rewards obedience. And obedience finds favor with him. Listen, I know that this can be hard. No one likes to suffer, right? And especially when you're doing what is right. We don't like to suffer. And I know that there are times when we want to pay back an evil boss or anyone who is mistreating us when we're doing what is right. But we have to remember God's word. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. God says that. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is, you will bring shame to him. And then the prayer is that shame would lead him to Christ. Because he'd realize and recognize his sin and may the, the weight of that sin and that shame drive him to Christ. Well, Paul says, look, if, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Overcome evil with good. Our job is not to take revenge on whoever's mistreating us, but we're to leave that to God. We're to leave that to God. God will take care of all of it in the end. I promise you that. That's what he tells us in his word. He'll make it all right. Our job is just to be obedient to Christ and submit to those who are over us. And when we are unjustly treated, we love our enemies, we pray for those who are treating us poorly, and we do what is right. And this finds favor with God. Listen to the words of Jesus from Luke 6.22. He says this, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad, in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Our boss may not reward us, but God will. God will. And here's the amazing thing in all of this. We're just going to touch on this in, in verse 21. At what, look at what Peter says there in the beginning of verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose. You've been called for this purpose. What's the calling there that he's talking about? This is God's calling on your life to salvation. He called you and he saved you. God saved you. You have been called or saved for this purpose. And we would ask, For what purpose? You ready for this? To patiently endure suffering that you don't deserve. That's what God says. You've been saved for this very purpose. To patiently endure suffering that you don't deserve. Because as you live for Christ and you go and you preach Christ and you desire to live in obedience to Christ, does the world love that? No. They hate it. They hate it. So what are they going to do? Bring what upon you? Suffering. And Peter says, look, you were called for this purpose. You're called for this. You've been saved to suffer. Mm, that's not a very popular gospel today, is it? <laughs> You've been saved to suffer. In other words, suffering is God's appointed means by which you and I receive the reward. 
But why? Why do I have to suffer? Because you aren't in this world system anymore. Because you and I don't belong to this world. In fact, you and I are enemies of this world system. Did you know that? As we live for Christ, we are enemies of this world system. So when God called you to be his child, you were no longer his enemy, but you became an enemy of this world system. And as you live for Christ, this world won't like you. In fact, take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 15. We'll close with this. John chapter 15. In verse 18. Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But, I love this, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. What's he saying there? Don't try and be like the world. Don't live like the world. Don't do things. You're not of the world. If you're in Christ, you don't belong to this world. He saved you out of this world. You belong to him. But that means what? It means suffering. It means suffering will come. And even bosses may mistreat you because you're always seeking to live for Christ. When you suffer, don't fight back. Don't rebel. Don't start a strike or a revolt. But walk in the Spirit and just submit and patiently endure the suffering. And remember that God will deal justly with those who mistreat you and He will reward you in the end. And listen, if you think you're alone in this suffering, the good news is, you're not. You're not. In fact, there is someone who has gone before us as an example to follow after, and we'll take a look at him next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these glorious truths that you've given to us in your word. We're amazed every time we open up your word and we read about what you have called us to. We thank you that you have chosen us, that you, Jesus, have called us out of this world, that we are no longer citizens of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. We belong to you. Father, we know that there will be times we go through in life where we suffer for Christ's sake. 
Father, help us to submit. Help us to endure patiently. Lord, we can't do this on our own, but we have to be those who are walking in the Spirit. Lord, we need your Spirit to help us to do this and help us to lean upon your Spirit, to depend upon your Spirit and to follow after Christ who is our model, our example. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who is still in the world, who is separated from you because of their sin. Father, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith, that they would understand their need for Christ as their only Savior, that they would bow the knee to Christ and proclaim Him as Savior and Lord, that they would trust in Him and that you, God, would do your sovereign work in their lives. Father, help us as a church to go from here and to live these truths out in our lives. Lord, that we might, by our excellent behavior, seek to win those who are a part of this world to Christ. And may we do it all to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.